Hey Conjurers, I'm Sham. And I'm Steph. When you or a loved one is sick, the first place we go to is the local drugstore to get immediate relief in the form of medication. What happens when you can't trust what's in the bottle, even if it's FDA approved, childproof, and on the shelf ready to be scanned and taken home? Today we want to share one of Chicago's biggest drug tampering murders and the one bitter pill that was hard to swallow. On September 29th of 1982, 12-year-old Mary Kellerman woke up with typical cold symptoms, including a sore throat and runny nose. She made her way to her parents' room for some form of medication to help her feel better, and like most parents, they gave her a few extra strength Tylenol capsules and sent her back to bed. The next morning, when Mary's mom went to wake her up around 7 a.m., she found her on the bathroom floor unresponsive and struggling to breathe. They immediately took her to the hospital, but sadly it was too late and she was pronounced dead three hours later at 10 a.m. Mary had been a happy and active seventh grader. She loved riding horses and was the go-to babysitter for the neighborhood. Her parents couldn't understand how this could have happened to their little girl. The doctors didn't see any evidence of foul play involved and ruled her cause of death as a stroke. That's heartbreaking. You never really think twice about giving your kids medicine to help them feel better. There's no way they could have predicted that. I mean, Tylenol is my go-to for my daughter when she's sick, and the liquid form was my go-to when she was a baby. It being tampered with would have never crossed my mind. Exactly. So I've heard of this case, and I know there was more than one victim. Later on in the evening that same day, 27-year-old Adam Janis took two Tylenol to help with his shoulder pain and went to go lay down. Shortly after, his wife went to go ask him a question, but once she realized she couldn't get his attention, panic set in. Just like Mary, Adam was barely breathing and would not wake up no matter what she did. She called 911, and when the paramedics arrived, they were able to help keep him alive by pumping his heart manually while he remained in a deep coma. Once at the hospital, Adam was left in the care of Dr. Thomas Kim, who found it odd that a perfectly healthy 27-year-old was fighting for his life. Even with all the 1980s modern technology, it wasn't enough to keep Adam alive. Eight of Adam's family members were at the hospital when he took his last breath. And as most grieving families do, they all wanted to be there for each other, especially Adam's wife and two children. I'm glad his family was there for each other. I can't imagine how it must have affected his wife and children. It happened so suddenly, it had to hit his wife and children hard. It's not like he died from shoulder pain. He took a pill and he never woke up. How did his family deal with the loss? All of the family members headed back to Adam's house, and in the midst of their grieving, took pain pills, specifically aspirin, to numb the pain of losing Adam so suddenly. However, Adam's younger brother Stanley, who was 25, and his wife Teresa, who was 19, took Tylenol instead. The family noticed that something wasn't right with Teresa and Stanley, and rushed them back to the hospital, where both were put on life support. The very next day, Stanley was taken off life support, and two days following his death, Teresa was taken off life support as well. The brothers had once dreamed of starting their own auto parts store, and Teresa had wanted a big family of her own. All of those dreams were lost in a matter of days. Oh my god, that family lost so many so quickly. That must have been terrifying. 
It's a blessing and a curse that his brother and wife took the same medication because now they at least know there's something all three shared that day that took their lives. This family saved so many lives. Who knows how many more could have died if they hadn't been able to make that connection when they did. They definitely made a connection. The same physician, Dr. Thomas Kim, who treated Adam, also had Teresa and Stanley in his care and noticed the similarities in all three causes of death. There was something they all had in common, but poisoning wasn't something that really crossed Dr. Kim's mind. He figured it had to be a case of food poisoning or carbon monoxide. Dr. Kim put the rest of the family under observation and sent a few staff, including his nurse Helen Jensen, to Adam's house to see what they could find. Helen ended up collecting what she thought could be evidence. One of the things she found was a Tylenol bottle that was missing only six pills. They would soon make the connection that all six pills were taken by Adam, Stanley, and Teresa. Even though the Tylenol pills were the only common piece of evidence all three of the Janices took, after examining the pills and opening them up to smell them, he didn't find anything off about them. However, he knew the side effects of an overdose of Tylenol, and the Janices shared none of those symptoms. Something was wrong, but Dr. Kim needed another expert's opinion. Detective Nurse Helen on the case. That would be such a difficult thing to figure out. A little bottle of Tylenol would be easy to dismiss. I would be looking for pills that come off sketchy, like a prescription bottle or something. I would absolutely look over big brand names like Tylenol. (laughs) So what exactly did they find in that Tylenol bottle? He ended up calling the Cooks County Medical Examiner and asked them to look further into the Tylenol capsules they found in the Janice's home, hoping that they would find something that he missed. Once the medical examiner got a hold of the Tylenol, he cracked it open and began to smell the powder that was inside. The scent he described was almonds, and one thing that was known to smell like almonds was cyanide. Not everyone is able to smell cyanide, and Dr. Kim was one of them, but luckily they were sent a medical examiner that can catch that smell. After the cause of death was determined as cyanide poisoning, they had to make sure. They tested all four victims' blood, and the results were exactly what they expected. They all died by digesting seven times the lethal dose it would take to poison someone with cyanide. Soon after this conclusion, the hospital also collected the bottle from Mary Kellerman's home, and it was determined that each bottle contained 65 milligrams of cyanide, which is 10,000 times the lethal dose. Wow, that's insane. They never had a chance. No matter how soon a loved one notices something is wrong, you would be brain dead before they can even attempt to help you. And there's no way to know how many more bottles might be out there. On September 29th, the exact same day they were trying to save Stanley and Teresa's life, a 27-year-old woman named Mary Rayner fell victim. She had just given birth to her fourth child, and like many women who have given birth, her body was in recovery mode. The first medication a doctor prescribes post-pregnancy is Tylenol, even in the year 2020. Mary was madly in love with her husband, Ed, and was a wonderful mother. She was looking forward to healing quickly so she could get back to her full life. She loved to cook, play softball, and the drums and bowling. At the same time, another woman, Mary McFarlane, aged 30, was working at a local store and began to complain about a bad headache. She ended up going to the back to take a few Tylenols. It only took a few minutes until she was on the ground struggling to breathe. 
Mary was a single mother doing her best to raise two boys on her own. Both women were rushed to separate hospitals and were pronounced dead the very next day. Three women named Mary were killed by these pills? Are we sure these are random victims? It seems like quite the coincidence to me. Seriously, though, this murderer had to have an ex named Mary he hated. (laughs) Even researching this case, I was like, wait, am I repeating the same victim's names? (laughs) I have a hard time believing in coincidences, but there's no way someone could have controlled who bought each bottle of Tylenol. Paula Prince was a 35-year-old flight attendant, and when her flight touched down in Chicago, she made her way to the place she was staying, but stopped at the drugstore for some Tylenol on the way. Paula failed to meet her sister for dinner the next day, wasn't answering her phone, and missed her flight, causing enough concern for her sister to call the police. Since she wasn't surrounded by family or staying with anyone at the time, she died alone. Her body was discovered by Chicago PD when they went to go do a wellness check two days later on October 1st. As soon as the police noticed Paula's lifeless body on the ground, their attention went straight to the open bottle of Tylenol left on Paula's vanity. It was clear that Paula had attempted to make her way to the bathroom when she started to notice something was wrong, but collapsed before she made it there. That's so sad. She clearly had people missing her, But alone at the time, she must have been so scared. She truly was all by herself. At least the other victims were found in minutes or the following morning. That breaks my heart. Cyanide is nothing to mess around with. Just so everyone understands the severity of being in contact with cyanide, I want to tell you exactly what it could do to the body, even with a small dose. Cyanide prevents the cells in your body from using oxygen. So picture being surrounded by air and your body not being able to use it. This is why all the victims were struggling to breathe, even though there wouldn't have been anything visible preventing it. Because the heart and the brain need oxygen to survive, both organs would have quickly shut down without it. Steph will tell us more after a short break. Hey Conjurers, this is Sham. I know my voice might sound a little different, but that's because I'm leaving this message through our Anchor app. We decided to add something special to some of our season two episodes that include you. This link will allow you to leave us a review, tell us about your favorite episode and what you love about the podcast. It's also available through downloading the Anchor app. We want to get to know our followers and where you guys are from. This link will be available on our social media and website. Now we cannot wait to hear from you guys, but until then, stay vigilant. Now let's get back to the show. The doses these victims were given is beyond a single cyanide pill, which is why they died so quickly. I also want to share with you guys how pill bottles worked back in the 80s. Back then, you could just open a bottle of medication and find the pills under some cotton balls. Medication was more commonly hollow capsules with the medication powder inside of it. Most people preferred to take the capsules so the medication would hit their system quicker. So simply pulling apart both sides of the capsule gave anyone room to put a different substance inside of it. There was really nothing in between the drugs and a person wanting to steal a few out of the bottle. I can't imagine how many people took those pills and filled them with everything under the sun in the 80s. (laughs) Yeah, it seems super risky. You would think someone would suggest protective seals without seven people having to die first. I hope they did something after they made the connections. This is a big deal. Well, prior to Paula on September 30th, 1982, 
Dr. Kim received notice that all of these people fell victim to cyanide poisoning through Tylenol capsules. As soon as they put all the pieces together, an attorney for Johnson & Johnson sat down with the county medical examiner. They decided this is much bigger than a few people dying by drug tampering and the public had to be made aware of this for their own safety. They held a press conference to let the public know about the incident and warn everyone to throw out the pills they had purchased. It was good that the public was now aware, but the Tylenol that hadn't been tested as safe was still out there for people to buy. Nurse Helen Jensen was one of the healthcare professionals that knew just telling everyone wasn't enough. She ended up calling Chicago PD and speaking to the head chief in charge and demanding that they take Tylenol off all drugstore shelves. This wasn't hard for the chief to agree to, so at 3 p.m. that same day, Johnson & Johnson announced that all Tylenol bottles from specific areas the victims purchased would be removed. Great job, Nurse Helen. That's a woman that doesn't play, and that's what being a nurse is all about. Absolutely. She's the real hero of this story. I personally would still be terrified, though. What if this guy, like, jumped states and he just starts all over? Right. So the same day they made this announcement, Paula's body was discovered by 11 p.m. Johnson & Johnson not only decided to pull the Tylenol from these original specific locations, but all Tylenol in the Chicago area was getting recalled. A few days later, on October 5th, Johnson & Johnson removed all Tylenol nationwide, adding up to 31 million bottles collected. The company took a huge financial loss of millions of dollars, but when it came down to lives versus money, it was 100% worth it. It's rare we see companies choose people's safety and well-being over profit. Right? Corporate greed over anything else is a real concern of a lot of people. Good for Johnson & Johnson for doing the right thing. I'm sure it put a lot of minds at ease by removing all of them off the shelves. Even though action was being put into place, you can imagine the panic going through the general population's mind. Johnson & Johnson offered to swap out the capsule pills for solid ones. This didn't stop people from calling into hospitals panicking because they took a Tylenol capsule and they thought they were going to die. One thing health professionals made clear was the fact that you're calling us and breathing right now means you're not poisoned by cyanide. The dose that was in each of those tampered capsules would have the average person unconscious in minutes. Yeah, if you were able to even comprehend calling anyone after taking a Tylenol, I promise you're safe. <laughs> right. People were scared and not thinking logically. But it sounds like Johnson & Johnson at least took initiative, and I can appreciate that. Johnson & Johnson emerged as another victim of this crime, and one that put customer safety above profit. It even issued national warnings urging the public not to take Tylenol and established a hotline for worried customers to call. The case has since become a model for effective corporate crisis management. Johnson & Johnson eventually recovered all lost revenue and then some because the public was so impressed by how they handled this crisis. Even further, on October 4th in 1982, the Chicago Council passed a bill adding a non-tampering seal to the top of all medication bottles, which is that little silver seal you see on the bottles under the cap. That's a big deal. Johnson & Johnson may have had some slip-ups, but I've never seen a pill bottle without a seal that's outside of the pharmacy in my lifetime. This just goes to show that if a bad situation like this is handled ethically, the company will bounce back and be rewarded for putting public safety first. Okay, so the public is currently safe. 
What's going on with the investigation into who did this? This crime didn't just add urgency for Chicago PD to figure out who could have done this. At this point, it was on a national level, and the FBI wanted to figure this out as soon as possible. They had the murder weapon, being the tampered Tylenol, how it worked through the cyanide, and where it was located based off the victim's purchases. But there was no way of tracking it back to one person. They didn't find any fingerprints on the bottles until years later, but by then it was smudged and led nowhere. There was no personal link to any of the victims, so they knew this wasn't a targeted crime. Everyone takes Tylenol. So this made the murderer even more dangerous because he didn't care who he killed or how random each victim could have been. If it had been limited to one household and no one else died from the same cause, then it's likely family members would have been suspects. But random, unconnected victims makes tracking down a common denominator nearly impossible. He or she really didn't care who they took out. Do you know how many children and pregnant women take Tylenol? It's known as one of the safest painkillers. I give my toddler children's Tylenol when she has a fever. This person was just trying to hurt anyone and everyone. So what were the investigators thinking? There were two main theories throughout the investigation. Some believed the pills had been tampered with on a company level. They interviewed all of the past and present employees. There were, of course, employees that held grudges, but they didn't seem capable of mass random murder. There's also the fact that most of these batches came from different factories, so it would have been very unlikely that one person could have orchestrated it from a company itself. That left the second theory, that it had to have been tampered with on a store level. Whoever was doing this was walking into stores, taking Tylenol bottles off the shelf, taking the pills home to fill with cyanide, and then sneaking the Tylenol bottles with the tainted pills back onto the store shelves. It could have been anyone. This was a well-calculated plan. I read that the suspect had to have bought pill bottles, so that could be literally anyone who went in to purchase one. Horrible, but genius. There's no way to determine how many bottles, which ones, or where they came from. Any particular suspects? Well, on October 6th, Johnson & Johnson received a letter from someone demanding $1 million if they want the Tylenol killings to stop. This letter was tracked back to a man named James W. Lewis from a fingerprint found on the letter. In this letter, James wrote the following. Gentlemen, as you can see, it's easy to place cyanide, both potassium and sodium, into capsules sitting on store shelves. And since the cyanide is inside the gelatin, it's easy to get buyers to swallow the bitter pill. Another beauty is that cyanide operates quickly. It takes so very little, and there will be no time to take countermeasures. If you don't mind the publicity of these little capsules, then do nothing. So far, I've spent less than $50, and it takes less than 10 minutes per bottle. If you want to stop the killing, then wire $1 million to bank account 8449597 at the Continental Bank Chicago, Illinois. Don't attempt to involve the FBI or local Chicago authorities with this letter. A couple of phone calls by me will undo anything you can possibly do. Why would you link a bank account to this letter? Why wouldn't you wear gloves? <laughs> this guy doesn't sound like he crossed his T's and dotted his I's. <laughs> Not super sophisticated for someone who supposedly pulled off such an effective mass murder plot. 
They had to have questioned this guy, right? Of course. They finally had their first lead, and they wanted to track James down immediately. After the FBI researched the bank account James provided, it actually came up as inactive and belonged to James's wife's former employer. That bank account didn't come at random. This former employer used to mess around with James's wife, and he could have given it to the FBI knowing it would trace back to him. This could have been a way to get revenge and frame an innocent person who he felt had wronged him. So if you want to get back at your cheating ex, just take this guy's advice. It could only possibly lead to a little bit of jail time. (laughs) (laughs) This is ridiculous. I get he was mad at the guy sleeping with his wife, but framing him for murder? Seriously? Right. What happened once they found him, though? Once James was arrested, his attorney tried to argue that this extortion letter isn't valid because James never planned on collecting the $1 million if he was sending it to someone else's account. However, no one in court was buying his excuse. During his trial, the U.S. attorney covering this case spoke to the court and said the following, The grief and horror of October and September of 1982 is what he trafficked upon to commit his crime. This fear he used was the means of what he sought to achieve his ends. The entire trial, he was portrayed as insensitive to human suffering. A jury of 12 deliberated for three hours before reaching their verdict of guilty for extortion and sentenced James to 20 years in prison with $10,000 in fines. He was released after serving 13 years in 1995. There was no evidence that James actually committed the Tylenol murders, just that he was guilty of sending that letter. However, in a majority of the public's eye, he was the one responsible for these inhumane deaths in Chicago. Okay, even if he wasn't the person to do the actual Tylenol murders, he still took advantage of a damn near terrorist attack. That's like writing a letter and saying you're going to bomb something unless you get a million dollars. If anything, you should go to jail for trying to mess up a very serious investigation. You could have just divorced your wife, buddy. Agreed. Don't try and mess around with a serious investigation. It could literally cost lives. I'm sure there were some people that felt like he was wasting actual time finding the killer. The ones that don't believe he is responsible just claim that James was an opportunist and was in it for the money or to frame the man who was having an affair with his wife. The police found no traces of cyanide in his home or purchases of it. There was nothing linking James to the Tylenol murders besides the letter. I think he's the definition of an opportunist. Did he have any of those classic past indicators we typically see? James did have a pretty disturbing past. When he was younger, he was placed into a mental institution and was treated for schizophrenia. He was violent towards both of his parents and everyone around him. There was even a rumor that he killed a 72-year-old man and his fingerprints were left at the scene. He had committed tax fraud in the state of Missouri and was currently a fugitive at the time of his arrest. James had up to 16 fake IDs along with his wife who had four fake IDs they used regularly. At one point in his life, James worked with a pharmacist who taught him how to make solid pills and capsule pills. James was known to brag about his crimes and seemed to be quite proud of his accomplishments. Even if James had the past making him capable of these murders, no evidence was found. Accomplishments. (laughs) I guess some of us have that confused with committing federal and state crimes. (laughs) Right? (laughs) 
<laughs> he certainly had the past issues and even training to be able to do this, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he did. This is true. So he wasn't the only suspect? Not exactly. Another suspect the FBI had in mind was the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, who was a well-known domestic terrorist with a very high IQ. He was a mathematical prodigy and went to Harvard University at the age of 16. Upon graduation, he became a professor for many years before quitting his job and completely going off the grid. He was responsible for killing three people and injuring 23 by creating homemade bombs and hand-delivering them in the mail between 1978 and 1995. He was very calculated when placing these bombs, often leaving misleading evidence behind to throw off the police. His main targets were those involved in creating technology. He was caught in 1995 after sending a 35,000-word public declaration to the media demanding they print it or he would set off another bomb. Once this letter was released to the public, his sister-in-law recognized his handwriting and turned him in. Ted was convicted in 1998 and sentenced to life in prison. The Unabomber also targeted people or places with names related to nature. For example, the locations the Tylenol was purchased at was wood-related names, such as Woodfield Shopping Center and Elk Grove Village. Yeah, and the founders of Johnson & Johnson also had wood in their names. That's definitely a weird coincidence. It also came to light that Ted's parents actually were living in Chicago at the time of the murders and lived in the dead center of the area of the stores and the victims. It's also possible that he was even living there at that time. Though Ted was never considered a serious suspect until 2011 when they requested his DNA and fingerprints to see if they were linked to the Tylenol murders. Unfortunately, there was no update found on the results of that test. That makes it seem possible that it was him, but I'm struggling with the idea that he would switch from bombing to poisoning. Good point. Killers don't usually stray from their MOs that drastically. Are those the only two suspects they have? Nope. One suspect was caught on CCTV footage at the Walgreens where Paula Prince purchased her Tylenol on her way home that night she died. On it is a man with a bushy beard that was just staring at her as she picked up the bottle in a rather odd manner. However, the image was too blurry to determine who this man actually was. As of today, the only suspect officially linked to the crime is James Lewis. On January 10th, he was interviewed by ABC News and stated that anyone who believes he is responsible is wrong. He even went on to say that he thinks about the victims daily. His main purpose for going to the interview was to promote his new novel titled Poisoned. When TV host Roger Nicholson asked him if he would be willing to admit to the crime, James responded with, The only thing I can say to you is that you're totally delusional. As he went on to promote his book, the real Tylenol murderer has never been convicted and this is still an open case. I don't know. The name of that book is super suspect. <laughs> right? He's either crazy or diabolical. He's probably both. <laughs> Did James Lewis confess to the murders in his extortion letter after getting rid of all the evidence? Did Ted Kaczynski switch up his act of bombing and tried poisoning people at random? Could the man on the CCTV image be either one of them or someone who got away scot-free? 
The Tylenol murders brought a lot of pain to innocent victims' families and could have done devastating damage to Chicago's community had it not been for the help of the medical and crime professionals. Though this crime came at the cost of many lives, they didn't go in vain. These murders completely changed the way drugs are handled by creating tamper-resistant packaging for the public safety. So next time you see one of those safety seals on your medication, remember the lives that contributed to making sure your loved ones never have to experience what these seven victims did. We may still not have all of the answers to the Tylenol murders. However, we have placed that CCTV image of the FBI's top suspect on our website. Most crimes need the community's help to solve. For that, there's Crime Stoppers. Crime Stoppers is entirely anonymous, and the process of calling Crime Stoppers is simple. If you have knowledge of a crime, call 1-877-903-STOP, which puts you in contact with the Crime Stoppers Command Center. An operator will answer the phone and take down the information you wish to provide. They will never ask for your name, number, address, or any other identifying information. You can also place a tip on the website at the Tip Submit button on the main page, or you can download the P3 Tips app. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode was done by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Alina. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for a question of the week. Sham, what's our Conjure tip of the week? Today we want to talk about the herb rosemary. If you have a toothache, backache, or any other type of pain, your first impulse may be to reach for a pill. Many people rely on medications, but they come with certain risk. You may find the relief you need from a variety of natural painkillers instead. One of those is the common herb rosemary. Some researchers have found that rosemary plants may help treat headaches, muscle, and bone pain, and even seizures. Rosemary may also reduce inflammation, relax smooth muscles, and boost memory. Yes, herbs are more than just tasty seasonings. Nature has provided an abundance of magical assistance all around us. Conjurers, we are so grateful for your support throughout our first season of Crime and Conjure. We'll be taking a two-week break before starting season two. But don't worry, we'll be back February 2nd with another episode. I cannot believe we're already 23 episodes deep and already on season two. What a wild four months we really never saw coming. (laughs) I know, it's so crazy. Season one was so much fun to make and share. I can't wait to see what we come up with for season two. Yes. (laughs) Until Until next time, time, stay stay vigilant, vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.